Welcome to Oncopharma. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this on October 29th, just a few days before uh, Halloween here in the States. Uh, we have three studies that we're going to go over, uh, published in the last uh, week or so. And the first one that I want to talk about is Keynote 426 which is a paper we've talked about before on the podcast. This is Exitinib plus Pembrolizumab versus Sunitinib in the treatment of met, first line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Now, these results were published initially in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2019. Uh, and at that time, Exitinib uh, and Pembro uh, showed an overall survival benefit versus Sunitinib and the, the primary endpoint you know, was overall survival, uh, maybe with or without PFS, but it was overall survival in all patients, all cohorts. And this is important uh, to delineate because prior to this, we had the nivolumab plus ipilimumab study that beat sunitinib. However, they changed their protocol halfway through only to look at those in the intermediate and uh, poor risk groups. And of course, that is where the overall survival benefit was. There was no benefit uh, with nevo ipi versus sunitinib in favorable risk category. Now, the favorable risk category would be patients uh, who meet all of the following criteria, I'm going to say. Uh, their time from diagnosis to receiving treatment was more than a year. Performance status is more than 80% on the Karnofsky scale. Uh, normal hemoglobin, normal calcium, normal ANC, normal platelets. Uh, if you had to say yes to any of those, you would not be favorable, favorable risk that tips you over inter intermediate risk. So these are the patients who have the best prognosis with renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and based on that Nevo-Ipi study, you know, Nevo-Ipi was not considered an ideal option up front for the favorable risk patients. Just, you know, sunitinib, pazopinib has some, some decent data uh, that it's actually uh, maybe better toler is better tolerant than sunitinib in the same patient population. So this was exciting because exitinib pembro beat sunitinib, it looked like it, all three uh, risk categories. And that just made it simple for folks. You could just say exitinib pembro will work for everybody, okay? Now, uh, and at the time that this came out, the hazard ratios in the favorable intermediate and poor risk groups uh, back in February of 19 looked similar, and the hazard ratio was 0.64. Now, the confidence interval crossed one, pretty wide confidence interval, but the hazard ratio in the favorable risk group was similar to what we saw in the intermediate and the poor risk group. So if you looked at the subgroup forest plot, everything kind of lined up, looked like Exitinib Pembro uh, worked equally well compared to sunitinib in all three um, risk categories. And this made sense because you had, uh, you know, a TKI plus Pembro versus another TKI, which was different than Nevo-Ipi versus sunitinib, which didn't have a TKI in the immunotherapy arm. Now, the key thing here is the median follow-up of that New England Journal of Medicine publication was 13 months. And what we have published this week in the in Lancet Oncology is the updated analysis of Keynote 426 with a median follow-up of now more than 30 months. So this is a little bit like we're going to be dealing this with uh, next Tuesday here in the States. Um, you know, when the election results come in, you know, you kind of want to wait for all the votes to be counted, right? Uh, so you, you wouldn't count the, the votes or the number of deaths after just 13 months, especially in a favorable risk category. In fact, in the, the New, England, New England Journal of Med publication, only 17 people total had died uh, in the favorable risk category, so it would be really hard. So there's a very uh, wide confidence interval back then, uh, a lot of uncertainty. So fast forward uh, up to now to uh, this Lancet Oncology publication. Uh, and now, here I'm going to just tell you the hazard ratios after 30 months of follow-up for favorable, intermediate, and poor risk. For favorable, 1.06, intermediate, 0.63, and poor, 
0.59. The confidence interval only crosses one for the favorable risk, and of course, numerically, that hazard ratio above one actually favors sudanitinib versus pembroxitinib. So this is way different than what we saw in the original publication and is a great lesson in waiting for further follow-up, especially for indolent diseases and favorable risk, renal cell carcinoma, uh, metastatic is much more uh, indolent than say intermediate or especially poor. Um, so what this tells us, and again, we only have 24 and 26 deaths respectively so far in uh, those groups in the favorable risk category or subgroup. So still more follow-up is needed, but it appears at this point there's not gonna be an overall survival benefit of adding immunotherapy to a TKI versus just sudanitinib alone up front. So that's an important update that kind of got buried in a low, not a, Lancet Oncology is a good journal, but uh, it will get buried underneath what was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what our favorite guidelines do with regards to how they they uh, recommend this exitinib-pembro combination, if they still recommend it up front um, as a preferred treatment uh, for those with favorable risk metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Okay. Uh, so the next uh, little item to talk about is this desatinib um, blenitumumab. Uh, I think they should include the word prednisone in the title since prednisone was also in there. Again, no love to steroids. I don't get it. Uh, this is desatinib, uh, prednisone, and blenitumumab for Philadelphia positive ALL in adults. It was published last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, if you go to Twitter, I tweeted out an excellent thread by an oncology pharmacist in North Carolina, uh, Benyam, who uh, you know really does a great job summarizing this. We're not going to get into that much detail and critique on this, so I would refer you to that thread uh, if you want to be really smart, uh, much smarter than what we're going to go over here. Uh, so this is the so-called chemo-free treatment for Philadelphia positive ALL in adults. Um, it's a single-arm phase two study. So if you just draw an X and Y axis and then put a dot in the middle of that, that's kind of what I, how I interpret a phase two study. Uh, you know, we don't know if it's better than anything necessarily. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, it's interesting. All right, so this is 63 patients and the primary endpoint was molecular response. Uh, the median age was 54, so kind of a young cohort for Philadelphia positive um, ALL. Um, uh, so the way that they did this is they gave them prednisone for a week and then they gave them desatinib along with prednisone. Uh, and the prednisone went about a month total. Desatinib went to 84 days. Uh, and the desatinib dose was 140 milligrams a day, right? Uh, and then after that 84 days, they received consolidation with uh, blenitumab at a dose of 28 micrograms per day, continuous infusion for four weeks. Uh, that's a little bit different in the relapse refractory dose where you do uh, a nine microgram per day dose for a week and then go up to 28. It's the same dose in the, the MRD uh, negative folks uh, from a few years ago uh, with blenitumab. Uh, so you do that continuously for four weeks, two weeks off, standard kind of blenitumab schedule for two to five cycles. Uh, and what they found here is the median, 18, uh, the median of 18 months of follow-up, the disease-free survival was 88%, overall survival 95%, certainly looks very good. Uh, 24 of these patients of the 63 or so went on to receive a transplant, so 38% uh, went on to receive transplant. Um, so certainly interesting, but again, it's a, it's a single-arm phase two study. Um, so I'm going to kind of talk about this in case you're in a practice like mine, where we don't treat a lot of ALL patients. Uh, we would refer them to a transplant center, typically for evaluation and treatment. However, based on the results of this study, if this becomes mainstream, uh, which with, with ALL, we do a lot of treatments based off phase two studies, not compared to anything, so that may happen. Uh, I certainly could see us doing this to satinib prednisone 
um, as induction and then referring them uh, to elsewhere uh, for blenitumab. So some of the important supportive care things, and you have to dig through the protocol and appendix to find this. Uh, they don't say this. They don't say the dosing of prednisone in the paper. I mean, what do we say at the end of every podcast here? Doses matter. So here's the dosing, prednisone. There's a ramp up. Uh, it's 20 milligrams per meter squared per day uh, on the first day and then 30 milligrams per meter squared per day, and then 40, and then 60. And that 60 milligrams per meter squared per day goes for uh, for a month. And then after a month, uh, you start to taper it within a week. Uh, and the actual schedule is a little funky. You know, the ramp up starts on day minus six, and then prednisone, uh, and then desetinib starts on day one. And then you taper the prednisone from days 25 to 31. So a little, it's a little bit funky there. Uh, they did mandate uh, um, Bactrim DS, so trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole double strength tablets twice daily, two days a week uh, for PCP prophylaxis. Um, they did not comment on if they did anything for stress ulcer prophylaxis for folks on, uh, you know, 60 milligrams per meter squared per day, it's over 100 milligrams of prednisone for most patients. It's a pretty high dose of steroids, and we would typically give those folks stress ulcer prophylaxis in our practice. Uh, and of course, uh, acid suppressive drugs that you would use for stress ulcer prophylaxis decrease the absorption of desatinib, and then in theory that would potentially decrease their effectiveness. Uh, kind of as a sidebar, we have uh, some, some not great data, but interesting data with nilotinib, which has a similar pharmacokinetic interaction. Um, that uh, in CML patients, if you look back in a you know a retrospective case control study, so again poor quality, that even though you know a PPI or acid suppressive therapy should decrease absorption of nilotinib, it doesn't appear to affect CML outcomes. Very different talking about AML here as well. Um, so what we would do in in these patients is we would give them their dasatinib in the morning, and then two hours later after all the dasatinib is absorbed, give them one dose of an H2 receptor antagonist. If you do an H2 receptor antagonist twice a day or a PPI, you will have decreased absorption of dasatinib. We know that from data. It's, it's in the, uh, the spry cell uh, prescribing information package insert. Um, so that's, that's a couple things. The Bactrim prophylaxis for PJP, uh, stress ulcer prophylaxis. Uh, six patients had CMV reactivation or infection, which is about 10% of the cohort, so something to monitor and look out for. Um, uh, and then uh, if you do do the blenitumab, they gave uh, levetiracetam for all patients receiving blenitumab to prevent seizures, which I'm not sure if that's standard of care or not. We don't do blenitumab at our institution. Um, so something uh, to keep in mind. So certainly interesting, you know, it made the New England drill medicine uh, may rapidly be start to become something that you see. Uh, you know, the big critique that I, I saw on Twitter, this is not my not my words or thoughts, is that this is a younger patient population than you typically would see for Philadelphia positive ALL. And of course, as they get older, they accumulate more and more types of mutations uh, and they don't do as well. Um, so those caveats in mind, I really just want to pass along those supportive care details in case you are involved like I am in uh, what would be just the dasatinib prednisone part of it. Okay, the last study I'm going to talk about, and I'm, I'm out of my element here talking about this. This is from uh, JCO this week, Journal of Clinical Oncology. And this is looking at uh, GCSF, granule site colony stimulant factor, with decidabine um, uh, as prophylaxis or really maintenance to prevent relapse in patients uh, with high-risk AML after an allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. I don't do stem cell transplants. We don't do blenitumab here, all right? Now, the kind of ironic thing is when I was finishing my training, my residency training, I was most qualified for a job in malignant hematology and transplant based on my training. I was the majority of my PGY2 oncology training. 
and now that is the job I would be least qualified for uh, outside of pediatric oncology pharmacy. So uh, I'm going to tread carefully here, and if I say anything, please uh, please correct me uh, on Twitter. Uh, so this, uh, again, it's GCSF plus decidabine. Uh, they call it prophylaxis. I've also heard this term maintenance. Uh, after ILF transplant for high-risk AML patients. High-risk for relapse, how do they define high-risk? High-risk is poor cytogenetics, uh, primary refractory AML, relapsed AML, or secondary AML. And to be included in the study, uh, they had to be in complete remission with minimal residual disease. They'd have no acute graft-versus-host disease, and if they had chronic graft-versus-host disease, it had to be controlled for 60 days. Uh, now, patients in CR with MRD and no acute graft-versus-host disease strikes me as a pretty high bar, and so a very highly selected patient population. Um, why would they do this study? Why would they do GCSF plus a hypomethylating agent versus observation, essentially? Uh, well, hypomethylating agents have been shown to increase numbers of Tregs, or T-regulatory cells, and they help with the development development of tolerance, which hopefully would minimize or prevent graft-versus-host disease, as I understand it, as well as increasing CD8-positive cytotoxic T-cells, which we hope would be uh, the mediators of the graft-versus-leukemia effect in this case. Um, and in theory, GCSF, which uh, pushes cells uh, into cell cycle entry, that may be part of how hypomethylate agents do what they do as far as increasing T-cell activity. So that's the theory here. As far as a background, there are, for my minimal research and understanding of this topic, uh, you know, single-arm studies with hypomethylate agents that kind of suggest that this is true. But I, there's certainly not a phase three you know, study comparing hypomethylene agent maintenance versus placebo or observation. Maybe there's a phase two study that's been presented at a meeting that I don't know about. I couldn't find anything. So they're comparing GCSF plus decidabine versus observation. The GCF dosing is like a third to a quarter of normal G dosing. It's 100 micrograms per meter squared, not five micrograms per kilo. Uh, day zero to five, so it starts the day before chemo. And then decidabine is a lower dose decidabine five milligrams per meter squared for five days, every six to eight weeks, depending kind of on how uh, their counts recover. Um, and uh, so the primary endpoint was the two-year relapse rate, which was 15% in the experimental arm versus 38% in the observational arm. And that p-value was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.32. So it looked to be a fairly large effect size. Uh, they also saw higher numbers uh, in concentrations of natural killer cells CD8 positive T cells and T regulatory cells in the gemcitabine, not gemcitabine, the GCSF decitabine uh, group. Uh, there was more neutropenia in the group that got chemo, unsurprisingly, 78% versus 47%, although most of that was grade one or grade two, uh, and uh, not too many differences in thrombocytopenia or anemia. So the toxicity appeared to be somewhat manageable here uh, with just you know kind of spacing out when you would do your cycles of decidabine. Now, big limitations here. This was done in China uh, versus uh, maybe here in the States. Uh, most of these patients, about three quarters, received uh, a conditioning regimen, including a drug I'd never heard of called nemustine, which is a nitrosurea. Maybe it's very similar to like a, a carmustine containing, containing uh, conditioning regimen. They also uh, added ATG uh, with their conditioning regimens. Not sure that that's done uh, here as well. Uh, I'm a little puzzled why they wouldn't just do, uh, you know, uh, compare uh, this experimental regimen to decidabine. 
uh, versus just observation. Uh, perhaps, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what the effect of GCSF here is uh, since they compared it to observation. Um, but this is something that I saw a couple, year ago, a couple years ago in a patient uh, who had transplant came back to our center and we gave this low dose hypomethylene agent. In this case, it was azacitidine. I was like, what are we doing here? And that's kind of what, uh, where I learned about this idea that hypomethylene agents um, can, can increase T cell activity. Uh, and the hope is uh, that that can uh, prevent relapse in these patients um, by maximizing the graft versus leukemia effect. Uh, Again, what do we say? More data needed. So we will see uh, as time goes on and more is published in this, uh, in this exciting field of stem cell transplant and cellular therapeutics. A lot of, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, so that's what uh, we have for today. Thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, all the ratings and reviews and uh, everything. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeaton. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, especially in the case of prednisone, Doses matter. Thank you.